0: In the 1950s, Marilyn Monroe famously sang, Diamonds are a girl's best friend, right? (laughs) And uh, uh, as far as diamonds go, there are no diamonds more famous than the Hope Diamond. And this is a picture of it here. It's been around for a long time and has a long and bloody history uh, to it as well. It's believed to have originated in India. And then in 1666, a French gem merchant uh, purchased it and uh, brought it back to France, and it was known as the uh, Travernaire Ballou. Uh, for a while, French King Louis XVI and his wife Mary Antoinette owned it before they lost their heads in the French Rebellion. And uh, since then, numerous people have claimed that the Hope Diamond has been cursed. Uh, eventually, it made its way uh, to the United States, where it's currently on display at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. And what makes a diamond so valuable, jewelers will tell you, is not only the history that goes with it, right, but are the four Cs, cut, color, clarity, and carat. Carat is the weight, is the size. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, clarity. carat is the weight, the size. Clarity has to do with the purity and the number of inclusions um, in the diamond color or, or lack thereof is unique among diamonds. And it's the, the cut that's really special. The cut gives each diamond its sparkle and its shine. Uh, diamonds in the rough, diamonds in their natural uncut form aren't actually much to look at. Uh, The rough crystals lack the sparkle and lack the shine. And it's the, the cutting of the diamond that really unlocks its beauty. And the number of facets, the number of faces that have been cut into the diamond really give it its sparkle and its shine. These facets brilliantly reflect the light and display the beauty of the diamond. And just as diamonds have many facets, many faces that make it sparkle and shine, the psalm that we're going to look at this morning has a lot of facets, a lot of faces uh, that make it really beautiful. Uh, Pastor Lloyd has been preaching through some of the penitential psalms so far during Lent. And there are seven so-called penitential psalms in the Psalter that have been used by Christians since as early as the 6th century to express their sorrow for sin. And again, this classification of penitential psalms is a man-made terminology, but I do believe it's helpful to some extent. But it would be wrong to say Uh, that the only facet of Psalm 102 is that it's a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession, a a psalm of repentance, because like a diamond, this psalm has so many facets, so many faces that we need to consider as well. Aside from being a penitential psalm, this psalm is a lament. It's It's a passionate expression, excuse me, of grief and sorrow. And it's a lament on two levels. It's an individual lament, and it's also a corporate, communal, national lament. The psalmist is expressing his own personal grief as well as lamenting about the sorrow that the entire community is going through. And the most interesting, the most beautiful facet of this psalm is that this psalm is also a messianic psalm. This psalm points forward to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, who was to come. And like a diamond, all these facets shine and sparkle at the same time creating a beautiful shine and brilliance to this psalm. So if you are able this morning, I'd invite you to rise this morning as I read Psalm 102. Um, The psalm is a little bit longer, uh, but I do want to read it all together all at once so that we can really see this psalm in all of its beauty, all of the facets that go with it. And we're actually going to start uh, before verse one with the uh, with the title. In your Bible, it might be in uh, all capitals or in italics or, or whatnot. Uh, but these titles of many of the of the Psalms are so old that they're actually probably original or very uh, close to it. Uh, so, beginning uh, before verse one. And Brian, do you want to help me uh, click through the uh, the Bible passage as we go through it here again? Reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 102. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forgot to eat my bread because of my loud groanings. My bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, day my enemy taunts me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her, the appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute, and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he may look down from his holy height from heaven the Lord looked down at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die that they might declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples to get, gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord he has broken my strength in mid-course he has shortened my days O oh my God I say take me not away in the midst of my days you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Here ends the reading. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I do thank you for today and for the chance that we do have to gather together in in times of crisis, in times of uh, panic and pandemic. We need you, and so we gather together to hear from your word today, and we look at this penitential psalm, this psalm of lament, this messianic psalm, and we pray that you would meet us through this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first and probably most noticeable facet of this psalm is that this psalm is a frail man's lament. You probably caught that in the first bunch of verses that I read. In these verses, the psalmist opens up his heart and pours out his emotions to the Lord. He begs the Lord to hear his prayer, to listen to his voice, and to answer him. Listen to some of the specifics, again, to the psalmist's lament. First, he acknowledges that his life is brief, the brevity of his own life. When he says in verse 3, My days pass away like smoke. My days are smoke. They are brief, fleeting. <laughs> Here one second and gone the next. And this is what is reminiscent of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? This is what the preacher says all throughout Ecclesiastes. Last year we had the privilege of studying that book together on Sunday mornings. You remember that far back? The preacher, as he again identifies himself in Ecclesiastes, begins his book with this wisdom. He says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Right? And the Hebrew word for vanity there is Chabel. Right? It can be translated as vanity or meaningless, but it also can be translated as vapor or breath. This gets to the, to the brevity of life, to the shortness of life. We might say the, uh, the smoke of life. Can I do this here on Sunday morning? I think I can. Um, <laughs> I've got a candle and I've got a lighter, right? And I'm going to light this candle, right? And uh, solely for the purpose of uh, blowing it out here in a second or two, right? Uh, this is a candle that we got, and it smells a lot like coffee. Uh, smells really good, actually, too, if it'll light here for me. I think I got it all out when I was practicing at home earlier, right? <laughs> all right. Here it is, right? I'm going to blow it out, and I hope you can see this uh, all the way in the back there, too, right? What happens, right? You see that smoke? How long is that puff of smoke going to last? Not very long, right? It's already fleeting. It's already going away. You can, you can see it. You can smell it. It's, it's very real, but it's also transient, temporary. It vanishes quickly. It comes and goes without permanent or lasting impact or uh, impact impression on the world such is life and i'm going to put it on there so it doesn't keep smoking (laughs) such is life right here one minute gone the next and the psalmist is feeling that his life is like that puff of smoke after the candle is burnt out it's it's fleeting it's temporary my days are passing away like smoke the second part of the psalmist's lament is that he is sick absolutely sick. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. It says, For my heart is struck down like grass and withered. I forgot to eat my bread. Because of my loud groanings, my bones cling to my flesh. We don't know what illness or, or disease the psalmist is battling, but it doesn't sound good, does it? He's been feeling so sick for so long that even food is repulsive for him. And he hasn't eaten in so long that his, his bones begin to show and are clinging to his flesh. The loss of appetite is an often it's a, it's a side effect of many illnesses or, or treatments, aren't they? It's never a pleasant place to be, but that's where the psalmist is. The next part of the psalmist's lament is, is the fact that he has been left alone. He has been left alone. And this, this reference is a bit more obscure, but he describes it in verses 6 and 7 there using some examples from nature, uh, specifically birds. He uses example of, of lonely owls in the wilderness and solo sparrows on the housetop. And I don't think that the psalmist is enduring a a voluntary self-isolation period in order to halt the the spread of this disease that he's got. Sadly, I think the psalmist has been abandoned by his peers during a stressful time in his life. They took one look at him and they were repulsed and they couldn't stomach being with him. It's been said that if you want to find out who your true friends are, you'll find out during a time of crisis, right? Those who stick close And then in verse 8, the next thing that the psalmist laments is that his enemies have been taunting him, relentlessly taunting him all day long, he says. All day long, they taunt me, they mock me, even going as far as using his name as a curse word. Nice guys, huh? (laughs) Talk about kicking a guy while he's down, right? Not exactly the people you want to surround yourself with when you're going through a crisis, a difficult time. You need people who will build you up instead of tear you down. Uh, whoever said, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Must have lived in, in isolation and loneliness, right? <laughs> because words do hurt, don't they? They hurt, they cut deep. And the psalmist probably does the, uh, the best thing he can, he can do in this time of, of his life. He brings this, these things that he's going through to the throne of God, expressing his grief, expressing his sorrow to the Lord. And there's one final piece to the psalmist's lament. It's in verses 9 through 11. And he says that his suffering is unexplained. Look at these verses again. He says, For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. He's saying in those verses, my suffering is unexplained. This is kind of similar to the complaint of Job, isn't it? Over the course of the last few months, the under-30s group has been going through that book, the book of Job. And in many respects, it's a very tough book to understand. It's a tough book to come to grips with. It deals with the issue of suffering, and suffering that is, for the most part, from Job's perspective, unexplained. His three friends hear of his awful suffering, and they try to comfort him, but as soon as they open their mouths, they uh, prove to be about as comforting as a pair of steel wool socks. They spend the majority of the book of Job telling Job that God must be punishing him for some secret sin, that Job is finally getting the, the spiritual karma that he deserves. But they don't know Job or the Lord. Job wasn't being punished for his sins. The Lord allowed Job to be tested, to be tried, to be refined. And all the while, the Lord was limiting what could happen to Job. And never once did Job blame God for what he was going through, even though Job never officially got an answer from the Lord as to the exact reason why these things were happening. Sometimes our suffering is simply unexplained. Why did so-and-so get cancer? Why did my dad have a heart attack? Why did my mom leave us and abandon us? Why did I lose my job? Why is my car in the shop for the third time this month, right? There are a million whys that we'll probably never get answers to. Sometimes our suffering is simply unexplained and sometimes, maybe often, we don't get an answer to the whys of life. Just because we are left wondering why that doesn't need need we need to abandon all hope however there is a light at the end of the tunnel we don't need to blame God for our unexplained circumstances or curse him we should do as the psalmist does in the next part of the psalm he sets his hope squarely on his eternal creator he sets he sets his hope squarely on his eternal creator and this is a second beautiful facet that we notice the hope that the frail man has in his eternal God and again when scripture uses the word hope it isn't using it to uh, express a a wish or a desire right the word hope when it's used in the Bible often times is used to describe a, a confident assurance in something something that's guaranteed something that you could anchor your trust in and verse 12 talks about the Lord's eternal throne the Lord's eternal throne look at verse 12 again keeping in mind what we have just read through, the frail man's lament and his life's brevity, his sickness, his isolation, his being taunted, his unanswered questions. He says in verse 12, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. This is a beautiful declaration, isn't it? The psalmist is going through all of these horrible ordeals in verses 1 through 11, and he acknowledges this profound truth that we'd be uh, good, wise to remember. You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. In ancient times, who sat on thrones? Kings and queens, right? Yeah, maybe a, a prince if, uh, if the situation warranted, right? But those who sat on, on thrones were the people in charge, right? Correct? Uh, from a throne, a king would rule. He would reign. He would carry out his official business, his, his declarations, his judgments, things like that. But the rule of kings and queens was short, wasn't it? Kings and queens eventually died and stopped their rule. Thrones and kingdoms were easily lost to war or usurped by greedy princes. Their rule was short. The Lord God on the other hand is enthroned eternally. You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. No matter what the circumstances or the situations of life or that you are presently going through, the Lord is still eternally enthroned. He is still in control. He is still in charge. And so when panic and pandemic come, sometimes we're quick to forget that, aren't we? We purchase mountains of toilet paper and oceans of hand sanitizer, trusting that our masks and our preventions will save us. In times of crisis, it's easy to forget that the Lord is enthroned eternally. In times of panic and pandemic, yes, we take necessary precautions and yet it is vital to do as the psalmist does. He takes his eyes off of himself and his present situation and he puts them on the Lord. This is how he maintains hope even in the darkest of circumstances. He's also able to maintain hope in the dark circumstances because as he says in verse 13 and 14 and then uh, Later on in verses 16 and 17, he has a bright hope for the future and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Look at these verses here. It says, You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. These verses lead most scholars to believe that this psalm was written either during the exile of, of Judah to Babylon or shortly thereafter. Uh, it sounds like Zion or, or Jerusalem is in ruins, right? Um, talking about the the psalmist talks about her dear stones and asks the Lord to have pity on her dust. Doesn't sound too good for Jerusalem as it sits. But there was a hope, there was a confidence that the Lord would rebuild Jerusalem. And this hope was, it was actualized through the work and the ministries of guys like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and, and through kings like Cyrus and Darius. Jerusalem was rebuilt and the exiles did return. And before it happened, the psalmist had hoped that the Lord would do that good work. And another piece, another place uh, that the frail man was able to anchor his hope in was the fact that God's glory would extend beyond the walls of Jerusalem and, and that the nations, the Gentiles, would eventually come to know him. And we don't have time to do this truth justice this morning, but just look at verse 15. This verse along with uh, verses 18 through 22 describe the conversion of the nations and, and the church of the future verse 15 says nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory throughout Scripture there is a hope again a confident assurance Uh, there is a hope that the nations the rest of the world would come to know the Lord you see, in the mindset of an Israelite, in the Old Testament times, you were either an Israelite or you were either an Israelite, one of God's chosen people, or you were nothing, one of the, the nameless, faithless multitudes of the nations. Israel had been set apart by the Lord God in order to be a, a light of God's love and mercy to the nations. They were to be that kingdom of priests, a holy nation under the Lord, sharing the law of God and the hope that the Messiah would come and ransom the world. But Israel failed miserably at that, didn't they? They were remarkably closed off. But yet the psalmist declares his hope that one day and one day soon, the nations, the Gentiles, would come to know the Lord. And that hope did eventually come to pass, did it not? If it didn't, you wouldn't be sitting here today. (laughs) While Israel had failed in bringing the Lord to the nations, the nations eventually did come to know the Lord. When Christ Jesus came, he came not just for Israel, but Christ Jesus came for all people, regardless of nationality. God's love for the world was demonstrated when Jesus gave his life on the cross for all people, offering uh, to you redemption from sin and peace with God. And this gift, this salvation is freely available to all who would receive it regardless of past sins and of past transgressions, regardless of past mistakes or or nationalities or, or race or gender. The love of God in Christ Jesus is for all. And there's a final facet of the psalm that needs to be discussed yet this morning and it's in verses 23 through 28 where we see a a frail man whose God is eternal a frail man whose God is eternal and first the psalmist begins by revisiting his own frailty look again at verses uh, 23 and 24 says this he has broken my strength in mid-course he has shortened my days O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of days, you whose yours you whose yours endure throughout all generations. The uh, psalmist's frail condition isn't far from his mind, is it? He remembers the brevity of his own life, his, his illness, the loneliness, the taunts that are coming his way, the unexplained nature of his suffering. And then here he reflects on this truth and laments to the Lord that the that the Lord, uh, <laughs> or he laments to the Lord. I'm sorry about the frailty of his own life, and nothing, nothing has underscored mankind's universal frailty these last few days like the coronavirus, right? COVID 19. Uh, we hear about it all over the place. We can't stop talking about it. It's a, it's a disease that seems to spread faster and more efficiently than a juicy piece of gossip. Hundreds of thousands of people from all over the corners of the globe, sick, thousands of people have died already, mass hysteria, panic, again, runs on toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Uh, entire nations on total lockdown, celebrities who have self-quarantined, um, themselves, professional sports leagues, right, have, have canceled uh, their seasons or postponed them. Schools are being uh, canceled indefinitely. Choir tours and trips have been canceled. Musicians even have begun to uh, live stream their shows. Uh, playing to an empty stadium but then live-streaming it out uh, so everybody can watch it, right? Governments have mandated shutdowns in some areas of more than a hundred people or uh, maybe even as few as 25. I I think I read one place, too. Uh, We've even changed the way we've done things this morning, right? We didn't have the greeting time and we won't be shaking hands, things like that, right? COVID-19 is a deadly, serious global pandemic. And the 24-7 news cycle and, and the internet haven't done much to help that panic, have they? Everywhere you turn, it seems to be more bad news. I did run across an article, however, that I found helpful. Um, earlier this week, the, the Gospel Coalition website had a blog post about C.S. Lewis' response to the COVID-19 virus. Actually, it wasn't COVID-19 because C.S. Lewis died in the early 60s. (laughs) But he did write an article that spoke very clearly to the things that were causing panic and mass hysteria in his day. Uh, After World War II, there was a massive arms race, right? And each nation was trying to build atomic bombs, uh, bombs that would win the next world war. Bigger and, and better and badder than the bombs that the United States dropped on Japan, And in 1948, just three short years after World War II ended, people were living in constant fear and paranoia that an atomic bomb might drop on their heads at any moment from any one of the number of nations that uh, that were their enemy. And Lewis wrote this article to address those fears. And uh, for our context, we might as well replace any reference to atomic bomb in this quote that I'm going to share with you with uh, COVID-19. Listen, listen to this. Lewis said this. He said, In one way, we think a great to deal too much about the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, live as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or live as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. <laughs> or indeed, live as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of the air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. And he goes on and he says this In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love are already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. It is particularly ridiculous to go on whimpering and drawing out long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which has already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made he continues and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb let that bomb when it finds us or I'm sorry when it comes find us doing sensible and human things praying working teaching reading listening to music bathing the children playing tennis chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep, thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, Lewis says, but they need not or dominate our minds. And uh, there is, by the way, a copy of that uh, quote on the back table. You can grab as you head out. And as usual, Lewis is, I believe, spot on. And again, as usual, Lewis can be (laughs) difficult to digest. Often his his writing is so much deeper than my thoughts that I have to take just a small bit of it and and ruminate on it for a while before moving on. So again, that's why the copies are in the back so you can take those if you want them and ruminate on them at home. But there are a couple of brilliant things that Lewis says, and if I may, I'll I'll extrapolate this for our immediate context with with COVID-19. How are we to live with the constant threat of COVID nineteen. Well, like Lewis says, live as you would live in any age of history where you were threatened with terrible things, whether it was the black plague that decimated Europe or, or the Viking raiders that attacked you without warning, keep on living, Lewis says. And then he's also quick to note uh, that we are all already sentenced to death, he says. Death is one of those things that that universal constant, the great Equalizer. None of us can escape it. We try to put it off as long as we can. We try to make it the last thing that we do. But eventually, death comes to each of us. And this is the result, the Bible teaches, of sin. Not a specific sin, per se, but sin in general. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, sin and death entered into God's perfect creation, wrecking that which he had called good death is the result death is the consequence of sin and Jesus Christ came to destroy death by his death on the cross dying in your place and on your behalf he defeated death and we eagerly await for his return when death will finally and ultimately be defeated the last enemy Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 the last enemy to be destroyed is death at the great white throne, judgment at the end of the age, death and Hades are all thrown into the lake of fire, never to bother God's people again. Until that day, we are all subject to death, whether it comes by old age, cancer, heart attack, an atomic bomb getting hit by a bus or a tragic farm accident, right? And so I believe Lewis would tell us, in light of COVID-19, to simply live life. Yes, take precautions. Wash your hands. Disinfect shopping carts. Stay at home if you're sick. But don't let your fears of the unknown consume your life. Simply live life. Let me lead the, read the last part of Lewis's essay again, uh, extrapolating that for our situation. He says, If we are going to be destroyed by COVID-19, let that disease, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about COVID-19. They may break our bodies. (laughs) COVID-19 as a microbe does that. But they need not dominate our minds. Amen. Let's get back to the psalm. That was kind of a rabbit trail. Uh, But let's get back to the psalm. There are a few more beautiful facets in Psalm 102 that we really need to gaze at before we appreciate its beauty. And uh, the next one I'd have you notice is the unchanging character of the Father. The unchanging character of the Father. Look at uh, verses 25, 26, and 27. Of of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens were the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Our Heavenly Father is unchanging. He is eternal. And that's the hope, this this confident assurance that the psalmist has, his hope anchored in. While man is frail and fleeting and temporary, God is eternal and unchanging And these verses describe a creator who will outlast his creation. The earth and the heavens, the the, the known universe, is the creation of God spoken into existence at the beginning. But the psalmist acknowledges that they will perish, they will be destroyed, they will pass away and be no more. Our God, however, he says, will outlast his creation. Not only is God eternal, but he in his character and nature does not change the Lord God told the Old Testament prophet Malachi uh, this he says I am the Lord I do not change therefore O children of Jacob you are not consumed just as significant as the truth that God is eternal is the truth that God doesn't change and it's significant because as Christians we, we trust the Lord and what he says in his word for example, we know from Scripture that the Lord God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will, um, keeping his steadfast love for thousands of generations and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, uh, but by no means he will uh, clear the guilty. That's from Exodus 34, written nearly 3,500 years ago. As God declared his name, his, his character, his, his nature to Moses. And yet because we know that the Lord does not change, we know that he will be faithful to himself and to who he is. Even today, we can continue to trust in his love and his mercy and in his grace because he does not change. And these verses from Psalm 102 also describe the unchanging nature of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. And if these uh, final verses of Psalm 102 sounded familiar to you, it's because we read them together this morning in our scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Go back and look at that if uh, if you didn't catch that. The author of Hebrews does something very, very interesting. He takes these verses from Psalm 102, which clearly talk about God the Father, and he applies them to the Son. To Jesus Christ. And and not only that, when you read through the Hebrews account, the author of Hebrews is saying that these verses from Psalm 102 are actually a, a dialogue, a back and forth between the Father and the Son. It's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, the Psalm was written about God the Father, but the Psalmist was also writing about God the Son, too. And in so doing, the author of Hebrews simply acknowledges what Jesus Christ himself acknowledged, that he is, in fact, the Son of God and God the Son. Jesus Christ has, from the foundation of the world, been God, the second person of the divine Godhead, eternal in the heavens, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. He is our eternal, unchanging Redeemer. Amen. There's a lot packed into this beautiful psalm, and I know we went long this morning, but thank you. This, these, these faces, these facets of the psalm needed to be looked at to see it sparkle and shine. And uh, I, I'd encourage you, take these verses home and meditate on them, even in the midst of this uh, corona crisis. Right? Keep this psalm before you. Steep yourself in the beauty of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do... Again, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we thank you, Father, for who you are, for your unchanging character and nature, for your love and for your grace and for your mercy, and also for your justice as well. But thank you that we can anchor our hope in in an ever-changing world, as fragile and uh, as uh, short as as our lives are. We can anchor ourselves in you. Help us to do that in the midst of uh, of everything that's going on in our lives today we pray this in Jesus name amen